to Nerds of Their Own Table, a podcast on a quest for quality pop culture. I'm Jamie. I'm Dwayne. Nah, I'm Sammy. And on this episode, um, Dwayne made decisions. Um, were they good decisions? Explain yourself, Dwayne. I made decisions. I um, chose 1984. The Talking Heads Stop Making Sense, directed by Jonathan Demme. This is reputed to be one of the definitive concert musical experiences. Um, I think uh, second only probably to uh, uh, Scorsese's The Last Waltz with the band. But, uh, you know, being a huge Talking Heads fan, a huge 80s fan, a huge fan of music in general, um, I just wanted to get your guys' take on this spectacle, this art house. And I know everyone has their own different views and tastes and we've never reviewed anything quite like this so we've had to adjust and shuffle a little bit so i'm very very interested to see where this goes but you know much like the talking heads in the charts they probably stayed in the top 100 so let's get to keeping it 100 It's time to keep it 100. 100. 100. 100. All right, well, I'm first. Um, look at that. <laughs> I actually am re-pitching something that I have pitched before. Let me get my timer. Going. Is that allowed? Uh, I hope so because it's very pertinent to uh, our review of this movie because what I'm reviewing is 2013's CBGB available on Amazon Prime starring Alan Rickman as Hilly Crystal. He moves to New York, buys an old beat up bar in the Bowery, an old beat up city and proceeds to shape the 70s and 80s punk new wave scene. Um, he CBGB stands for country, bluegrass, and blues. I don't think he ever got Conway Twitty in there like he was <laughs> wanting, like he, he references in the movie. Um, but, you know, he had the talking heads. He had Blondie. Television was the first big act. Um, you know, the Ramones, Iggy Pop, you know, all of your staples, 70s and 80s punk. And I think uh, the show says that he had 50 thousand bands through there wow. in the 33 years that it was an active club it kind of ends with uh, the police coming over and, and being on stage and he and he has no idea you know but there's these guys he's there and you see stink turner he says you know we're, we're the police and is there a play and he says there's something there and he would say that about a <laughs> lot of bands that that would uh, that would go and his joke was if you play too loud i'm walking out so my 100 seconds is up, so I'm walking out. <laughs> I didn't hear a lot of country or bluegrass in that list of bands. Yeah, me <laughs> yeah, no, that was and, and that was the thing. And he, he's like, yeah, I'm gonna, he said, uh, bluegrass. And, and he's even quoted it toward the end of the film. He says, you know, I thought country was going to be the next big thing. And it was in Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, he, he had a vision and he made it happen. So it's a very, very interesting movie. It's a very interesting take. And, you know, we get to see Alan Rickman on mm. screen again. We get to see cool. you know, wonderful actress, Ashley Green, 
is in there. Malin Ackerman plays uh, Debbie Harry of Blondie. Mm. You have uh, Johnny Galecki uh, is one of the managers of some of the bands that passed through there. Taylor Hawkins, the drummer of the Foo Fighters, plays Iggy Pop perfectly. Hmm. I can see that. Yeah, perfectly. Not a family-friendly movie. Lots of language. <laughs> lots of things sure. happening if you know the reputation of CBGB. Uh, yeah, but it just goes to show you what, uh, you know, giving these youth a venue can do. Cool. All right, uh, and now for my Keeping 100, something completely different. I didn't go with the theme. Um my um, my pitch this week is the Aeronauts, and it's an Amazon Prime original. Um, it's not an all time great movie, but it's set in a period that I really enjoy. Um, it's the two main performances are really strong. It's Felicity Jones and Eddie Redmayne. It's pretty much the whole movie is those two. There's like you get occasional other characters in flashbacks, but it's primarily a, a it's a movie where Eddie Redmayne is the scientist who who's the first guy who thinks you can really predict the weather. Like, he was the first weatherman. <laughs> and uh, Felicity, still haven't got it right. When Felicity Jones is an aeronaut. And so she takes him up in a balloon, and they're, they're trying to go higher than anyone's ever been before. And it's just about all their travails. And they do a really clever thing in the movie where, in the beginning, they're both portrayed as like really unlikable. <laughs> and, but as the movie goes on, as you see the flashbacks, as you see them interact, as you see them come to understand each other, by the end of the movie, you really end up really loving both of the characters and finding them not just really likable, but you're rooting for them to accomplish their mission and to survive it. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a really fun movie. It's it's you know it's free on Amazon Prime, um, and it's despite the fact that it is an Amazon Prime, I mean it doesn't look cheap. I mean it looks like you know a movie with a good size budget, and I just love that sort of period piece, that movie. So it's it's a good time. The Aeronauts. Cool, and that would be a, a second time they've played opposite each other, right? Weren't they both in Theory of Everything? I believe so. Maybe. Was he Stephen Hawking? Yeah, I think he was Hawking and she was, she was the wife. Okay. I believe so. So that that's interesting. I always like to kind of see that, you know, especially if, if two actors have a lot of chemistry, you know, and I can see them kind of playing off each other. Yeah. And uh, I think it's the least... Um, I've seen Eddie Redmayne be a weirdo because mm-hmm. he's, he's always playing like eccentric characters. It's yes. like he's still eccentric because he's Eddie Redmayne and he's in a movie. Um, but it's like he's like his, him and his like least eccentric. So right. It was interesting. It's like the most straight laced I've seen him play a character, and it was, it was interesting to see. Cool. Let's check it out. All right. So um, I'll kind of start my timer here. So I have a new uh, Apple Plus show to add to the mix. Uh, the one of the last times I think we had Jim on, he had pitched my 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 other favorite show on Apple, which was Ted Lasso. So I'm going to add for all mankind to the list of Apple exclusives, and this is a definite checkout. Um, imagine if the Apollo One accident caused NASA to slow down on their push for the moon, and the Soviets got there first. So this is dealing with, you know, how a small inciting event can play off an alternate history. Uh, so it, it, it's kind of an interesting. Uh, Joel Kinnaman, who is Rick Flagg in Suicide Squad, plays one of the lead characters. Um, you know, the, all the historical characters there, Nixon's there, Von Braun's there. Um, so it, like I said, it's an interesting look at history and how that alternate history can play out. 
Um, and like I said, it's an Apple Plus exclusive, and it's pretty cool. I'm into it's in the second season now, so I'm about halfway through the first season. So uh, that's my keeping to 100 for all mankind. I don't know about that. I love space race movies and documentaries and that kind of stuff. I really like when we win, though. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's always fun to be on top. Yeah, I don't know about that. It, 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 it's like I said, it's it's a weird twist, and as it's going through time, you know. There, there's other things that I've heard occur, and I'm not, I haven't got to those points yet. Yeah, I've never, I've never heard an alternative history twist of, of that variety before. Like right. Lots of other things I've, I've seen done. I've, I've not seen that one, Russians winning the space race. Yeah, and like I said, it was really neat because it, it was that, that incident, the Apollo 1, you know, the, the fire, and Von Braun pulls back and goes, you know, we need to be more careful. And so because of that, you know, the Soviets get to the moon first. Wow. Yeah. So. yeah, they didn't care much about being careful. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Well, I think those were good uh, good picks, good pitches. I think it's time to get to this uh, movie? Film? Review? Review? Whatever it is that Dwayne has <laughs> had us watch. Concert doc. <laughs> and so it's time for our opening thoughts and grades, and I am first. And... To be completely transparent, I don't know how to review this. <laughs> this is so outside the wheelhouse of anything I've done on any kind of podcast. Kind of sort of don't know how to wrestle it into shape. Um, and I'm not sure I know how to, and it's so outside of my experience of, of like of like thinking intelligently about something that I'm not sure I can speak intelligently about it. Okay. Um, so I'm just going to be giving a grade purely on my level of enjoyment. There you go. Um, it's a B. Uh, I don't actually like concert films. Um, I think there are only two I've ever enjoyed, and this is one of the two. <laughs> so you've added so there's not just the one on the list. There's two on the list now. Awesome. Um, nice. I had a good enough time. I wasn't blown away. Um, there were some creative elements that I liked, but nothing that made me just really just go wow and you know knock my socks off. I had a, but I, I did have a really good time. That's a solid B. And the Talking Heads is a is a band that I like. I'm not the same kind of fan that you are. I'm not near your level of fandom of. Uh, talking Heads, but it is a band I like. I think that helped, but also it is a really good sort of stage performance, and so it was a good time. It was very entertaining. Okay, may I ask what your other concert is? <laughs> Metallica through the neighbor. Okay, okay, it's a good one. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. I, I get bored through most well, concert Met- films. Metallica always hmm. puts on a good show. Yeah. Well, and that one's they've kind of got like a movie kind of thing going on in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got the, is that the, the Dane DeHaan's in it? Dane DeHaan yeah. on the search for the magic pick or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I remember yeah. that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. <laughs> yeah. It was fun. It's dumb, but I enjoyed yeah. it. Uh, I, I guess my other one would be maybe like Tenacious D or something, but no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, you know, as, as far as this, I, I agree with Jamie. It was different than anything that we had done before, and, and I liked that. I liked being challenged to kind of think about this a little bit more. You know, I've always been, you know, I've always loved music, but I was always the worst person for lyrics. Oh, what's the name of that song? You know, I knew the chorus of most songs because of infomercials. I watched a lot of TV. Um, you know, so I knew who the talking heads were. You know, Psycho Killers, probably for me, one of the most easily recognizable. Um, even though I was talking to a person the other day and they're like, I've never heard Psycho Killer. And I'm like, you are my age. Why have you never heard Psycho Killer? But... Um, but it's definitely, like I said, a new experience. And it gave me a new appreciation for the band itself. And throughout the whole thing, I did decide, 
if they're ever going to do a big budget movie of the Talking Heads story, Cillian Murphy has to play David Byrne. Yeah. Hands down. That's good. That's uh, a good call. Hands good down. Pick. So I'm going to go grade A on this. Okay. I, I enjoyed it. And maybe it's because I didn't have as much background on the band. There were some songs I had never heard before. You know, I knew some a few things about them. But so th- this was kind of a, more of a learning curve for me. So I'm going Awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, I know this was going to be a stretch. I know this was going to be a difficult review because not everybody thinks about music the way that, you know, someone who thinks about music all the time thinks about music. You know, I, I'm, I'm one of these people. I'm into the minutiae. I'm into the... The, the, the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts. I want to know who wrote what song, who plays what instrument, what instrument they played on that track, how it was recorded, when it was recorded. You know, and, and, and you know, forming a set list, putting a performance together, choreographing, making sure things are in its place. This really, uh, you know, it, it exemplifies a lot of that. Um, you know, and two, I love the fact that the energy of it. Uh, and I know during the, the CBGB uh documentary or you know a real movie and different things that i watched about some things i looked up about the band the talking heads were one of the bands that would go to cbgb's and just stand and play they didn't have all of the stage antics even that you see in this they you know because you would see blondie and and iggy pop and these guys on stage and they would just be insane bouncing off the walls and stuff and they said that the talking heads had a, a, a a reputation of just standing and playing really well and that was just kind of their thing. But as they got more artsy, as they got more experimental, they start bringing these world instruments in. They start bringing these um, situations in of different musicians, different performance elements, uh, almost a religious experience without the, you know, the, all the dogma that surrounds mm-hmm. it. You see Byrne almost shouting and praising on stage, you know, and he's dancing and stuff. It's a very, very interesting to me how that this all comes together. Um, you know, this very innovative for an early music, an early concert. The little bit of a fact, the band put this together for $1.2 million that they raised themselves. It was recorded over three days in one city. They just played three nights in a row, recorded all three of them and put it together. Very interesting. But uh, I, I, I love this. Uh, and uh, this, I'm going to give this an A+. Plus. I mean, you know, this is my picks, my baby, and I've talked about this numerous times, I think, even even on the show and in, uh, you know, the Keeping 100 sections. But, uh, you know, with all of the dancing, with all of those musicians and singers on stage, I bet it was pretty warm in there. I know the stage was kind of sparse at times. I thought I saw a fan in the background. Graphically Novel. Three brothers tackle a different graphic novel each week. Listen as the Brothers Fugit discuss classic and not-so-classic graphic novels. Subscribe now on your podcast feed of choice. Graphically Novel, three brothers who like each other but love comics. I know, I know Byrne could have used one. Oh, he definitely, yeah. he was, yeah, he they, was. They, they were all sweating pretty heavy there. You, you see so. how those guys stay so thin, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, how many calories are they burning just on life during wartime where they're just all jogging in place, you mm-hmm. know? <laughs> well, I think at the drummer, at the end, wasn't the drummer shaking his head and just, and sweat just was sweat just flying. flying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Chris Franz, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very interesting thing about the band, too. You know, you had uh, uh, David Byrne, 
and Chris Friends trying to form a band in art school. They couldn't find a bass player. Tina Weymouth was Chris Friends' girlfriend. They taught her how to play bass. And over the course of the band, David Byrne made her audition six times to keep <laughs> the job of bass player. Then they met Jerry Harrison a little bit later on, and, you know, that's where the, the, the true, you know, boom happened. And all, hmm. all of that musical, you know, electricity. Nice. Well, Sammy, you're first of the gate with your fans. All right. You know, as far as fans, you know, I, I talked about this was, was, was a learning experience for me. It was something I had never really kind of checked out. So I think the true highlight for me was really seeing how experimental, how innovative this band really was. You know, Byrne is, is an interesting fella. And, and there's definitely some talent there. I mean, just with, with him as, as, as kind of the, the front man type of thing. Uh, I love the way the concert started. The fact that you built the band. I mean, you were six songs in before you had everybody on stage. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's kind of a neat thing. I've never seen anything like that before. And just as soon as the, everybody was on stage, man, the energy hit and it never stopped. And that was just such a cool part of it. Well, my fan goes exactly off of, of what you said. It's it's the construction of the stage, uh, and it really goes through the songs. It goes through the band's history. You know, you had you come out with Psycho Killer, and it's performed here differently than it was performed on the album. Because on the album, it was you know full band. This you know it's just is it's a bird with his guitar and a boombox, you know, spastically dancing all over the place. You know, and, and you know, and that goes into that performance. But you know, that is a song that he has maintained. He he wrote that. He wrote that alone. He wrote that many years ago. And then you see, you know, Weymouth coming in with the next song, just him and bass. And then they bring Chris Friends out, and then, mm -hmm. and then they build and they build the band as the songs go. And then and then you bring in the other musicians that they that they brought in on later albums and different uh, productions and. Uh, you know, just seeing that history develop live on stage and, like you said, how the energy grows and the interaction from person to person, how they bounce from instrument to instrument mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the, the different performances and you even have the stage hand come out with a lot, you know, moving <laughs> it around, you know, for the for in the words in the back, you know, and how the things change. And, you know, if, I think the only person who really had a wardrobe changes was Byrne. He you know, his suit, the big you know, suit. randomly changed from regular fitting to different sizes of large, you know, <laughs> as it went. But, you know, that was a very, very, uh, I think, innovative way to build a set list, mm -hmm. especially for a concert that's going to document kind of the history of the band, how it takes from the very inception of the band and grows as the band grows. You know, you're bringing out the drum riser, you're bringing out the keyboards, you're bringing out the percussion, you're bringing out the background singers. You know. Um. Going back to something you mentioned, the um, the way they built the band out as they went along. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that was like also a reflection of like, I know, I know they didn't start off as like, you know, one guy with an acoustic guitar, but they very much built the band out as they went along. It was really much a, just a stripped down rock band when they started. Yeah. And they kept adding more stuff. Do you think that was part of what they were reflecting to with, with the way they built out the, the structure of the show, like bringing out more people and doing the same thing there? Yeah, yeah. Just how the vision of the Talking Heads grew. You know, um, how, uh, because like you said, you know, you, you had Byrne, you know, doing his solo performance essentially of Psycho Killer. And then, you know, he comes out with just him and Weymouth kind of as a duet with just with Heaven. And then uh, as, the, as the band grows and, you know, you have the song by the Tom Tom Club later mm -hmm. on. 
And I don't know if you guys know where that came from, but then like in 1981 to 83, Byrne left the band. And it was everybody else. It was it was Harrison, France, and Weymouth. So they did the Tom Tom Club and released like two albums. Well, then they get then Burn comes back in. They released another Talking Heads album just before this. Well, then they even honor that Tom Tom Club, uh, you know, era in here. You know, with uh, with uh, uh, oh shoot, what was the name of the song here? I've got it. Set list. The Tom Tom Club song. Yeah, the Tom Genius, Genius of Love. Of love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Genius of Love. Um, you know, and it's one of the only songs on here, aside from Take Me to the River, that doesn't have a credit for Burn. You know, as a writer. And I think for a lot of young people, that's probably actually the most recognizable song in the set list because yeah. it's been used in like commercials. Yeah, Mariah Carey, you know, sampled it mm-hmm. for a song. I think I think more people like or younger would recognize that song more than any of the Talking Head songs. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah, it's very very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so my my fan is is just the stage presence of David Byrne. Um, he's a gigantic weirdo. I mean, he's strange. <laughs> he moves strangely. His facial expression is strange. His <laughs> sometimes it's, he's got crazy eyes going on, but there's just something about him on stage that is just magnetic to the eyeballs. I mean, you can't. I had trouble looking away from him. Um, just the way he would move, the, the strange things his neck does. <laughs> I mean, but he's just. I mean, despite being incredibly nerdy, he is like an epic level frontman. I mean, he's just one of those guys with this huge personality with this kind of weird nerdy charisma. And you just and he just kind of owned the stage, and I, I just that I was just kind of blo- I I, don't, I think I'd seen him in music videos. I don't think I'd ever seen them perform live, and so I, I wasn't aware of what kind of stage presence he had. And I, I, I was really surprised by really how much he owned the stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting to me, you know, how much of a clean cut image the band has, and you know how people associate you know that with just nerdiness or or you know introvertedness but how they come out and just are phenomenal musicians they own the stage they have these great performances you know imaginative ideas and it's just really really neat yeah that was that's that's that was a i'm I'm so interested to how these fans and fans are coming out I love, I, love, I, love, I love talking this out with you guys that's great you know but all of the props that we had i did not see any pans laying around and i don't know if uh you know we, we all gave these things pretty high grades uh, a plus uh, a and a b so let's see if we can find some pans maybe to throw at the band Just, right. just Jerry Harrison to wake him up. Just <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't know. There, there seemed like there was quite a few uppers and downers going on <laughs> on the stage at times with different different performers. Uh, he looked bored. <laughs> I know he's performed some of those songs a lot, but he just looked downright <laughs> bored. <laughs> well, well, there's a good possibility the percussionist had some pain somewhere. He had a little bit of everything else yeah, he, he was beating on over there. So. Yeah, he had, he had quite the sit. Yeah, Friends, <laughs> Friends is a very uh, artistic uh, yeah, but uh, I'm going to go first. Uh, I would have liked to uh, have had a little more focus on the original band. Um, you know, you, you had these great musicians. You had Alex Weir, uh, you know, what was the other guy's name? But uh, the other keyboardist, the, the back, the backup singer, Stephen Scales, doing percussion. I mean, phenomenal, beautiful, awesome additions to the Talking Heads thing. But, you know, this was a 
quote unquote talking heads thing. You know, I would I would have liked to have heard a little bit more from Harrison. I want to have heard a little bit more from France and, and, and Weymouth especially. Yeah, I did a, a little bit of research. Um, apparently, that was their touring band. They weren't just like musicians they hired to do the show. That was their touring band at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I think they felt like more comfortable than they would with just like regular sort of they just hired musicians. And so they were more used to being on stage with them. But I, I think you're right. I, I think I would have liked to have seen more focus on the, the more long-term, you know, like the actual members of the band. Yeah, right. Um, uh, my, my pan isn't fair. <laughs> I know it's not. Um, I I don't have an in between with talk the talking with talking head songs. I either adore them, or I don't need them in my life. I mean, there's no, there's really no in between. No and so like they got most of the ones that I love on there, except for Anne She Was. That I don't know how you don't you don't have Anne She Was. It was on the next album. Was on, okay. That explains it then. Yeah. Um, but there were a couple of those that I'm just like you know. I, I don't like these songs. <laughs> um, and so I, I think it's just the, the set list. I would have replaced a few of the songs. You know? There's just a couple of songs I don't care for. Yeah. Um, and so it's because that's not fair. I mean, but. Yeah. Which I think, and she was, you know, which was a good hit for them, was on their next album. And in Wild Wildlife, I think it's another hit. I think that was on another album. But they hit most of the big ones. I mean, Burning Down the House was on there, Psycho Killer, um, the other big one. Once in a lifetime. Once in a lifetime. Yeah, I mean, they they had the big ones, right? The ones that had to be there, but there a few of them that would have just switched the songs in and out of. And there's a, I don't know what it is about bands. If you were a band that was formed in the '70s, you have at least a couple of songs on every album where you just play the same riff for five minutes, yeah, and let your <laughs> organ player go crazy for a little bit. And I just can't stand that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, they were a little heavy on the synths at times. <laughs> just a touch, just yeah. a touch, you know. I'm like, at least play a different riff. You're yeah. just playing the same thing and letting oh, your guy on the... Yeah. <laughs> oh, mercy. All right. Um, what's so funny with this for me is, you know, my fan was, was how creative the band was, right? And how talented Burn is. Well, my pan is kind of the flip of that. Burn is very talented, but he is somewhat distracting on stage. Okay? A little bit. People talk about John Mayer and the weird faces he makes when he plays guitar. David Byrne goes way beyond that. (laughs) All right? Between his version of doing the pigeon and then what was up with the shaking and hitting himself during Once in a Lifetime? You know, I mean, he was just hitting himself in the, like, act like he's hitting himself in the head and just, flopping i didn't know um but, you know the music was was enjoyable but i just kept going what's the point of that you know kind of deal so uh that that's about the biggest thing i could come up with pan wise now if i remember right the forehead slapping and the the arm thing that was in the video that was right? in the video yeah. yeah okay yeah that was in the video he had kind of got into um into the uh the physical expression um and really almost like a, like I said, you know, almost like a religious experience you would see, like if someone, you know, being moved uh, you know, emotionally right. or, or spiritually to something. Um, and I, I think he was, I don't know if he was, I don't, I don't th- want to say he was making fun of that, but he was, you know, he was kind of addressing that in, in the motion. You see really a lot of that and uh, just, just the weird frenetic dancing and movements. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the uh, it was almost 
yeah, a kind of, kind of distracting at times, but it, it really just also fit with, you know, well, with, with the, the it, thing that they were doing. It was to, to the beat, though. You know, he, he was shaking and slapping himself to the beat. I mean, so. The only one that I didn't get that I thought was kind of like, what are you doing here? Was the lamp thing. Yeah, that was that was really interesting. I, I actually read about that uh, in an interview. Apparently, there was a, an interview floating around on uh, on a version of this concert where they talked to the band. They actually talked to a few members of the band. I couldn't find it. I don't know if it's you know special edition somewhere, physical or whatever. You know, I, we found it on Amazon Prime. Um, but they they asked him. You know, I was like, you know, you don't write a lot of love songs. You know. And he said, well, he said, I wrote one love song. And, and I actually sing it in the concert, but I sing it to a lamp. <laughs> so, you know, that, <laughs> so, and, uh, whatever, you know, but it's just, it's just one of those little weird proppy things that they do, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I, I did like, though, that they had the rest of the stage really dark. And, and, and you know, almost the soul source a lot was that lamp. And it was really neat. Yeah, it was, it was visually striking. I just didn't understand it. Yeah, yeah. Well, a- apparently that was the the Talking Heads love song that we've all missed. Okay, <laughs> being a love song according <laughs> to David Byrne. Oh, yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know these guys were uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in two thousand two, so I think they deserve some. Awards. Take a trip down memory lane to the old five and dime where sammy aka comic book kid takes a look at the origin of some of our favorite heroes and villains in his podcast one thin dime focusing on the golden and silver ages of comics when the cover price was just 10 cents check him out every week on your podcast feed of choice one thin Dime. All right, Jamie. All right, first out of the gate is best performance, and um, I'm not quite sure what exactly you wanted here, um, but I'm going to go with Burn performing the rearranged Psycho Killer. Um, that is, and it's not even close, my favorite Talking Head song. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of like this, like, it's original recording is this really sort of intense sort of driving song. It right. really drives. And so when he walked out <laughs> with a boombox and acoustic guitar and started doing a version of Psycho Killer, I'm like, this ain't right. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the physical performance and just the, the way they, they, the way they adapted it to an acoustic, you know, guitar setup solo. I was very entertained by that. Uh, I still prefer the original recording, but, and then the, the spastic falling, dancing sort of thing he was doing it was very entertaining so uh, the the performance the way he sang that song and the strange things that happened with his face and combined with the the just the interesting way of doing psycho killer i i, I was it was entertained by that and just whatever that following thing was he was doing I, I really enjoyed everything about that part of the show especially you know I, i'm in the same boat there that was the the same thing because you know with psycho killer you you hear the full band in your head when you when you think about Psycho Killer, and to have him come out with just a cassette player and an acoustic, and to translate that in a stripped down version, I just I just thought that performance worked so well. 
and it, it the first thing right off the bat. So right off the bat, I was hooked. Because like, man, that's cool. And I, and I, I wouldn't have. I mean, if you just described that to me, I wouldn't have thought it would work. Mm-hmm. Because Tina Tina Weymouth's bass line in that song is so, so good and God, so yeah. strong. And and for it to not be present in that song still work mm-hmm. is just kind of. I mean, it's shocking. Yeah, I think one of the things that made that work though was the was the, the um, you know the drum machine track mm-hmm. that started stuttering, uh, you know, at, at, and broke up the beat. So instead of the driving tension you have with with Weymouth and, and uh, driving that song, you have the oh it's falling apart. It's not quite here, you know. And and he's just yeah, that's that, I think that really substitutes a different. Uh, interpretation really really well um I, you know psycho killer i love the song and i love the performance on here but i i love when the whole band is firing on all cylinders and especially uh sam referenced it a minute ago and uh you know it's it's david byrne when especially when they're doing once in a lifetime you know and he's and he's having this fits and he's slapping himself and he's dancing and shaking and and flipping and flopping on the stage you know uh he he just Devotes 120%, you know, when he's on stage. He, he bleeds it. Yeah. So, Sam, best song. All right. So, you know, we, we led with Psycho Killer at the beginning, and then we went straight into Heaven. And that's going to be my best song. Um, adding, still with the acoustic, adding Weymouth's bass, it was just so cool, something about that. You know, I'm a sucker for an acoustic anyway. Uh, you know, that that's what I'm drawn to. Uh, Music-wise, I like singer-songwriter type stuff. I like an acoustic. The stuff I like to play, acoustic, right? So so Heaven played on acoustic with just that little bit of bass line by Weymouth. That, that was just such a great song for me. Okay. Um, I'm going to jump in with um, a song that's... in extremely synth heavy i think uh, of the two keyboardists on stage and the one bass synth that they had i think that uh, we only had like one electric guitar and everything and the acoustic drums and everything else was synthesized on the song but i'm going for a girlfriend is better um, right after the uh, tom tom club performance that uh, burn mm-hmm. comes out in the big suit and uh, that song just so drives and it has a namesake of this doc of this we all say documentary, but it's concert. You know, stop making sense. Mm-hmm. Stop making sense. Making sense, but uh, stop. Uh, but girlfriend is better. Better. I'll, that song just makes me want to move. Well, I'm a '90s kid, and we rebelled against all of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I still remember uh, Nirvana coming out and just de- demolishing, demolishing the '80s. The 80s yeah. yeah, and you didn't hear a synthesizer for a decade. For a decade. No, no, yeah, it was a good eight years. Yeah, yeah. Before you heard the yeah that that was when I was a teenager. That yeah. was happening. So I, the synthesizer <laughs> stuff, y'all can have. <laughs> uh, for me, the best song, and I think it is my Psycho Killer, is my favorite Talking Head song. I think Once in a Lifetime is their best song, and it's performed so well here that I, I mean, like I said, it's not my favorite, but um, I think it's their most powerful song too. And so I'm going to go with Once in a Lifetime. I, I, I totally agree with that. I think it's a very powerful song. A little bit of trivia. The biggest hit on the album at the time was Burning Down the House. Mm. Yeah. I like that one too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a killer song. It's a good one. 
Well, I'm uh, up next. Uh, uh, we, and, and of course, you guys are noticing we're having to change up the awards uh, to, to kind of suit <laughs> what we're doing here. Um, so instead of best character right here, we have best choreography. So, you know, there was a lot of, of movement. Uh, some of it syncopated, some of it not. Um, looking at you, Jerry Harrison, trying to dance with the backup singers <laughs> and not quite getting it. But, uh, you know, the best choreography in a song. At least uh, he was awake. At least he was there. <laughs> he woke up for that show. And it'd be tough to dance as well as those, as those two, two ladies. Girls. They, yeah, were, yeah, they, they were breaking dance, it down. Man. Yeah, they, were, they were breaking it down, dancing and singing. But uh, I love the choreography, the, the frenetic pace, and, you know, how much they made the song drive even more than the actual album version is uh, life during wartime. Uh, you know, it's just from the get-go, the entire band. If you're on the floor, you're running. You know, they're all jogging into place, they're leaning forward, running, they're laying back, running, they're running to the side, they're running David Burns, running around the stage, jumping over the podiums and stuff. Uh, you know, uh, the guitar player, I don't know how in the world they're keeping time, but, you know, they're just bouncing and jogging, and they're not running into each other is a good thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm going I'm to go with best, best choreography there. Uh, well, my mine was a small moment, but there was a moment where um, the two the two dancers were dancing in sync, and sometimes they were doing different stuff. Sometimes they were most often they were dancing together in mm-hmm. in sync. But there was a moment when when Tina Weymouth came over, started dancing with them, mm-hmm. and she was still she was she held it strong. She was playing her bass. She was doing it great, but she started doing the exact same choreography as the two ba- backup dancers. And I was both impressed by that, but also how much all three of them seemed to be enjoying that. Yep. Um, just, I mean, Tina Weymouth's face just was glowing. Yeah. She was having so much fun doing that. And so that, that was my favorite little bit of choreography mm-hmm. in the whole thing. Yeah, that's great. Cool. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of with, with Dwayne. You know, live during wartime, just to have the entire band moving in the same way, still playing, still singing, still holding everything it needs to be held, and everybody in the band is doing that, 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 I don't know the, the running man, whatever it could be. Right. You know, and, and it takes me back to, to watching body electric on KET growing up, you know, and you had that synth music and they were exercising and, you know, that kind of thing. But just, the, I mean, it's just the cardio. I mean, seriously. And like Dwayne said, yeah, you've got burn doing laps around the stage in the middle of it all. So <laughs> That was one of, like you mentioned before those uppers and downers going on that, that, <laughs> The, the minutes they were doing that, I wondered what had happened before they came out on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Especially Burn. Yeah. He just started sprinting. Or started sprinting yeah. Why? It was, and he'd go a little slower, and then he'd speed up really heavy. <laughs> and it's like, all right, dude. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then and at the one part where he's talking about, um, in the lyric where he's talking about, we dress like you know, housewives, we dress like students in order to suit the time. He's laying on the stage. Yes. Spasming, and, you know? Yes. And then he just leaps up and the camera doesn't show him in focus leap up. It goes to the backup singers. But you see him in the corner of the stage like just come up like three feet off the stage and then land and take off. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just one of those things. I mean, you know, I, I, I've done some you know, plays before and just trying to get everybody's choreography to do the same, moving the same it's way. Tough. That's tough. 
And these people have instruments while they're doing it. Yeah. And like you said, they're not running into each other. So well done on yeah. them. <laughs> and, and, you know, this was, this was before, you know, I know we uh, recently reviewed this as Spinal Tap and the incidents with the wireless systems. This is before <laughs> that was a thing, you know, so they're dodging cables too. <laughs> yeah, big time. <laughs> well, at, we were talking about the dancers. At one point, somebody's going around and they're having to move because they're yeah. about caught on the cords. Yeah, uh, it was part. Tina Weymouth was dancing around one of the girls, uh-huh. and she very gracefully spun out of the base cable. Yeah, you know, so that she didn't, didn't trip that. and fall or or, or uh, uh-huh. unplug Weymouth. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, our next award is best lyric, and unfortunately, I'm going first. I don't have an intelligent thing to say. <laughs> Um, I didn't pull out a single lyric. Um, I just pulled out all of Once in a Lifetime. Um, just in total. Um, yeah. every, every time I listen to that song, it just, it, it makes me feel things. <laughs> My cold, dead heart starts feeling things. <laughs> um, and it makes me think, and it makes me, um, just reflect on my life, whether I'm making the most of my time here, uh, am I, am I living by my best priorities and principles? Am I wasting the gift of life that we've all been given? You know, just that, that song makes me think things. You know, and it, this is the same band in Psycho Killer and all these other silly <laughs> songs. But this one song always has that kind of impact on me. And it's not mm-hmm. one line out. It's just that whole thing like, you know, reflecting on life. You know, what's it about? Are we are we doing well? Are we making the most of what we've been given? And just the the way that the lyrics of that entire song, you know, if, if you're paying attention and you're still, you know, not dead inside, that song should make you think. and It should make you reflect. And I, I, love, I love the way that that song does that. I agree entirely. That's a very beautiful, uh, beautiful lyric there. Um, I'm, I'm going to go back to Life During Wartime, uh, that being one of my other favorite songs of theirs. You know, and, and he's talking about, you know, we've got a van that's loaded with weapons, packed up and ready to go. And, you know, are they talking about actual warfare or is or are they talking about, you know, going out and making a living with this music thing? Hmm. You know, and um, back to my Keeping It 100, you know, there's a, there's a line in the chorus, and the chorus changes throughout the song. For the most part, it's the same, but you know, he's at the first one says this, this ain't no lovey dovey or whatever, you know, this ain't no disco, this ain't no lovey dovey, but then they say, you know, or when he says, this ain't no disco, this ain't no mud club or CBGB, mm-hmm. and you know, they've arrived, they've got to the next level, you know, they would they would go to the mud club, Max's Underground, CBGB's in New York, and all these clubs and just play, play, play all week. Well, now they're they're made it through the war, they, they're on stage or in a national worldwide you know, situation um, that I don't know this makes me think about that I, I love those lyrics and you know, how, how it juxtaposes you know from there's the beginnings to where they are now and, and making it interesting you know I think with the talking heads sometimes so much of the lyrics almost feels so stream of consciousness mm-hmm. that it's hard to really nail down like a cons- consistent thought, feeling, you know, like like you would think about an emotion in a, a th- in a typical song, right? But there is a line I really liked in the last number, cross-eyed and painless. Um, Sharp as a knife, facts cut a hole in us. Mm-hmm. And I just kept thinking about that. Good, you know, I can kind of see that, you know, that 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 cold, hard truth, you know, Facts cut a hole in us. And I was like, it's kind of a cool line. So. Very interesting there. Uh, co-written with Brian Eno, along with the rest of the band. Hmm. 
that was one of the ones I would have taken out of the series. <laughs> <laughs> Not one of my favorites. And and to close the concert with I that, know, right? Was, <laughs> they, they, they closed. They made they made choices. Oh, there, was, you know, there, there were some choices because you would have thought, you know, like like burning down the house or once in a lifetime would have been an encore. Yeah. Well, right. they stick those in the middle of the set. That mm-hmm. was so weird. You know, uh, when the energy is the highest, and they and they close kind of. I won't say low, but at a much lower energy than yeah. than you know you 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 come to in the middle. You know? Yeah, I thought it was strange, um, like the, the way the whole set list was set up. Yeah. I, I the, when we started explaining like hey, we're building the band, it was also building the band's history. I wondered how much that played into the entire set list. Yeah, but yeah, some, some like <laughs> the way that was ordered. I'm like, how were you not closing with burning down the house? Right. <laughs> how, what are you doing? Yeah, and and you also wonder too was this decisions made just for the just for the concert release, you know, or were they actually played in this order across the three shows? True. Um, you know, because I, I wondered about that too because you see different times, you know, Burns got his hair slicked back. Sometimes it's kind of messy. Sometimes it's down really neat. Sometimes it's slicked back, you know, because or whatever he's been going on or sweating like a madman. <laughs> well, from what I from what I saw, um, because well, I did a. Tiny, tiny bit of research. <laughs> Apparently, they did do the same concert three different times, yeah. but because they they were doing three different camera setups, and so like every time you see a camera from the right, it's from like day two. Right. Every time you see a camera angle from the left, it was day like one. And yeah. like everything from straight on was like a different day. Yeah, I, I think I did read that as uh, the very articles. Well, they wanted to keep this cameras visible to the audience as minimal as possible yeah. for the audience experience, but they still needed to document the show. You know, and, uh, you know, this, of course, being directed by Jonathan Demme, you know, he did a very uh, masterful job of blending that. You know, I did find it interesting, though. When you think of most concert type, even music videos that, that are that are done at concerts, you tend to see more of the audience. Mm-hmm. You didn't really see any any of the audience to the main end. Yeah. Didn't you know, you didn't see their reactions there, you know, and that's usually part of a concert thing. You see the how the audience is reacting. You didn't to the have songs a lot of audience stuff. noise either. You yeah, didn't have a lot of the applause. I think you got very little here and there, but not not much at all. Yep. This was uh, one of the first uh, concerts recorded digitally. Mm. Um, they used uh, digital technology to record this uh, instead of uh, you know to analog tape. That's very interesting too. Okay, well next award um, is uh, Sam. You're uh, taken out with uh, best prop. Oh, yeah. It's got to be the lamp. I mean, come on. <laughs> the lamp during this must be the place. Because, at, listen, think about this. At first, it feels just like this incidental addition to the stage. But then it becomes Burns' dance partner. It feels like an old Fred Astaire movie for a moment. Where, you know, Fred Astaire's dancing with the inanimate objects. So, I mean, that's where my mind went. And I was like... That's kind of cool. So, yeah, I liked it. Okay, I can see it. I can see it. <laughs> you mean, you mean, me, me say the right answer? You want to? You want to? Sure. It's the big suit. The big suit. <laughs> it's Come the on, Sammy! Come on, Sam. What are you doing? <laughs> I like the lamp, man. <laughs> it's the big suit. It's the big suit. You know, like that's the, the most iconic the thing. That's what you think about when you think about the talking head. You think about him on MTV. With the big suit yeah. sliding back and forth in it, you know it's it's even on the cover of the uh, of the album, uh, but yeah, it's the big suit. <laughs> a runner-up though is David Burns' top button. 
<laughs> no matter how hot no he got, no matter how sweaty he was, that top that button top stayed button. button. <laughs> yeah, that top button is button. <laughs> you but know. see, I, I think part of that comes down with with a little bit of my theater background, right? I see that as costume, not prop. So see, that's where that comes down. See. <laughs> There's a lot inside there holding that that little guy holding that big suit on. There's a whole apparatus in there. I think it might qualify as a problem. Yeah, yeah, I love after girlfriend is better, he takes the jacket off and you see the. the Yeah. You know? At least takes that red hat on. Yeah. You know, that was thrown on stage by a fan. Oh, okay. I was wondering what the the deal was. Yeah, yeah, that was thrown on stage by a fan and he he put it on. And so I think that was like in the middle. I think that was like the second night. Hmm. So they had to put it on. They had. Apparently, you can see it on the drum riser whenever they're using footage from the third night. Huh. Uh, yeah, it's pretty neat. It's the big suit. <laughs> oh, my oh, goodness. What a- <laughs> it just had to be different. It had to be different. Well, you know, the name of this thing is Stop Making Sense. <laughs> well, this is true. Um, but, okay, next, uh, next and final award is the best use of uh, the stage or sound design. And, and I'm leading off. And... Uh, I'm going to go with, with kind of a sound design situation. I love the blending of classic instruments with the synthesizers and keyboards because, you know, you have the acoustic guitar and you have these big racks of synthesizers going at the same time at, on different songs. You have, uh, you know, Tina Wayne with leaping back and forth from, you know, a, a plucked, you know, finger bass to, you know, a, a keypad synth bass. Uh, Jerry Harrison bouncing back and forth between his Fender Stratocaster and the guitars. Uh, you know, David Byrne even playing with his digital digital delay pedal to make the whooshing sounds on some of the effects, you know, with, with his guitars. But I, I love how that was blended together uh, so effectively. A lot of bands still haven't figured that out. Uh, mine we've already mentioned uh, several times is the way they, I thought it was really clever the way they slowly built out the band on stage. I just, I, uh, I, I I enjoyed that, um, just the way like in in it kind of like, I don't know, the sound changed too. Like I mean, it, I, I know they're just playing different songs, but I mean, <laughs> like it felt like a different vibe. Like when it was just burn, it yeah, felt like a different thing. Yeah, yeah, you have different eras as yeah. different elements were. Added. I, see, I didn't know yeah. that at the time. I just I thought I, I thought it was really a clever way to introduce the different yeah. band members too. And so mm-hmm. you got to like, I mean, <laughs> if I hadn't seen the Jerry Harrison section on the fourth song. Might have forgotten he was on stage for the rest of the thing. <laughs> but I mean, I, I thought that was really clever the way they did that. And so uh, I enjoyed that. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I know Burn and the band, along with Demi, kind of worked on how they wanted to set it up. You know, but I think it also goes to the cinematographer, the way it's shot. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you all noticed, Jordan Cronenwith is the cinematographer, who is also cinematographer on Blade Runner. Peggy Sue got married, uh, altered states. So, you know, the, the cinematographer on this was also on those. And so, you know, definitely got some chops going on. Um, so you all kind of talked about the sound and things like that. I thought that the use, the way the backdrop was used, the fact that you, it was just a stage, you had no backdrop, nothing at first. So even the backdrop came in like, yeah, it it looked like backstage literally. And the way after the, the, the backdrop came down, it almost became like this big projection screen. Um, I loved, you know, the text during making Flippy Floppy, 
you know, uh, the silhouettes that were used in Girlfriend's Better and, and, and what a day that was, you know, and it kind of heightened the effects of the song. You know, it gave it that additional depth, that texture. And I just thought that was a really cool use of the background. Okay. Well, you know, this is a music show that we're going to hear. And I'm very interested to see what comes next. Because we have to make sense of Stop Making Sense by bringing it to our centrality, to our singularity. We've got to bring it back down. To Keanu. <laughs> now, where does Keanu connect? Well, in my back pocket, I had Tina Weymouth plays the bass, and so does Keanu in Dogstar. Now, see, I wondered if that would be where we would go. See, I, <laughs> see, I see from the, from the smugness on the face. See, I, I was thinking uh, Keanu did a Talking Heads cover on <laughs> with, with a band. <laughs> No, we have an actual one-to-one Keanu connection. Wow. So it, it took a little bit of work, but it wasn't as bad as I was feared. Um, I was totally prepared to go with, <laughs> he plays bass he in plays bass. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, So this week's Keanu connection is a guy with a bit of a career swerve. Uh, he appeared as an actor three times, all just glorified cameos. Then for only two films, Stop Making Sense, in 1941, he worked as a production manager. Uh, strange. Especially considering that what he spent most of his career doing was as an assistant director or a, or a second unit director. I felt like maybe, I'm not sure what he was doing when he was, I don't know why he wasn't directing something on this. <laughs> I don't, it's weird. Um, but he worked on things like The Fabulous Baker Boys, Young Guns, which is a good movie. I don't think anybody says. Uh, the Right Stuff, Taps, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Godfather Part Two, and American Graffiti. So Charles Myers has quite a career doing assistant director stuff. He did some kind of management thing for Stop Making Sense. But his very last career credit was as assistant director on Bram Stoker's Dracula, starring our beloved Keanu. Charles Myers' last credit is this week's Keanu Connection. And there it is. <gasps> tons, tons of assistant director stuff. Couple little other things he did. Thankfully, one of those little other things was stop making sense. <laughs> well, well, that's, that's, uh, uh, Jamie, you never cease to amaze me with your Keanu connections there. Uh, and I'm, I'm so tickled. This is a thing that we've kept going. But, uh, you know, guys, I hope you have uh, enjoyed our uh, review uh, our little visit there in the Talking Heads Stop Making Sense. Uh, I had a ton of fun uh, checking this thing out, and I, I believe my co-host did too. Oh, yeah. Had a lot of thoughtful insight there, and I'm very uh, happy for that. Coming up, we have, I don't know how thoughtful it is. Back in my wheelhouse, big I dumb think, fun. Well, I was going to say, I think, you know, we, we, we've had Kong, we've had Pacific Rim, now we've got Mad Max Fury Road. I think we're going to have to title this part of the year the big dumb fun part uh, because we're just having a lot of this so jamie why don't you tell us what we're talking about we are there's a there's a kind of a connection there's a little bit of a through line there's a prominent guitar player uh-huh. in Mad Max. i was gonna say we, we've got a we've got a, a guitar player that's what i was thinking about yep nearly as eccentric as david Byrne. Mm-hmm. i mean it's close um <laughs> 
Uh, I have I have a great fondness for the old Mad Max movies. Um uh, but and I when they when I announced when they announced they're making a new one, I was like, okay, they either need to have old Man Max or they need to not do this. I, w- I was not prepared to have a Mad Max movie without Mel Gibson. I don't, <laughs> don't know how you did that. Uh, I know how you do it. You put him in a face cage for the first hour. <laughs> so we don't realize. But uh, Mad Max Fury Road is just a movie I love. And it is. It's not deep. Um, there's a little there's a little bit of thematic Ooh, stuff in there. It's a little yeah, they, touch. They, they try to, they yeah. try to make you think. Miller yeah. tries. Um but it's just so much fun. And it's just an intense movie. And I, I love those sort of really sort of intense, like and just really enthralling movies that pulls you in and doesn't let you go. And there's not, I mean, Mad Max uh, Fury Road is in the top tier of those, that, that kind of movie that just grabs you. And it doesn't release you until the credits roll. And so I, I love this movie. And Sweet. so, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm on Safer Ground reviewing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well... Uh, I, I did a little bit of digging. Uh, Mad Max Free Road is available. Uh, if you're a subscriber to HBO Max, you won't have to pay for it beyond your subscription fees there. But unless you have a copy on your shelf like Jamie does, you'll uh, be renting it for $3.99 on Amazon Prime or most other places. So, uh, you know, go check that out until uh, we review that next week. I hope you guys uh, are able to check it and come back with us and enjoy that review. Well, Jamie... As we're getting our copies or digital sources for Fury Road, until our next episode, what are we going to do? We're going to guzzle our sweet, sweet aqua cola as we keep it nerdy. (laughs) 